I'm so sorry that I can't be there with you in person, but I thought it would be good to not share my message and share my germs with you at the same time. Before I start, I wanted to say thank you so much to the many of you who have uh, been praying for us and serving us and checking in with us as my family deals with this round of COVID. Um, we're hanging in there, um, but I really wanted to share this message with you because these things have been on my heart, in my mind for a while now. So today I wanna talk about why believe there is a God. And the question of why anything exists at all is the most profound question of philosophy. The philosopher Derek Parfit says, no question is more sublime than why there is a universe and why there is anything rather than nothing. The notion of God or the idea of the existence of God is almost impossible to avoid. God's name is printed on the physical currency that we once used to pay for our stuff. For those of us who remember what paper currency looked like on it, you will find those words, in God we trust. And the Pledge of Allegiance that most of us memorized when we were kids says, one nation under God. 81% of Americans say that they believe in some kind of God, with over half saying that they believe in the God described in the Bible. So I think we can all agree that almost everyone thinks about God in one way or another and believes in God. Even if we conclude that we don't believe, my hunch is that we're still giving the notion of God at least some thought from time to time. It's not just the adults who wrestle with the notion of God. Even little kids think about God too, and their questions and their thoughts can lead them to write letters to God. I was able to find a few of these, and here are some of my favorites. God, I bet it's very hard for you to love all of everybody in the whole world. How do you do it? There are only four people in our family, and I can never do it. Nan. Or how about this letter from Lucy? Dear God, are you really invisible or is it just a trick? Lucy. This one's my favorite. Dear God, maybe Cain and Abel would not kill each other so much if they had their own rooms. It works with my brother, Larry. Maybe they wouldn't kill each other so much. It's easy to laugh at these letters from children whose questions are likely to go unanswered but if we're honest, we as adults have serious questions that can go unanswered too, that make God seem less believable. And maybe that nagging question in the back of your mind has left some lingering doubts to, for you about whether or not God is real. If you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you'll know that we're joining several hundred churches all over the Bay Area and in Moldova on a seven week journey called Explore God. And if this is your first time here, welcome. I'm really glad that you came or that you um, dialed in. I want you to know that during these seven weeks, we're digging into seven big questions that many people have about God or faith. And our desire in these seven weeks is to not convince anyone or argue with anyone or remove all of your doubts, but to be honest 
and to wonder and to dialogue and converse together and explore God together. And I wanna say that this is true for people who don't identify as Christians or for and for people, for those of us who do. It's a space to give um, room for our questions and our doubts. So the question that we're talking about today is why believe there is a God? Sometimes those who deny the existence of God are tempted to think that educated intellectual people don't believe. But I want to say that history's most influential intellectuals are convinced they absolutely believe in the existence of God. I wish I had the time to give you hundreds of examples, but I want to share with you just two people. Albert Einstein was one of the most um, recognized and revered scientists of the 20th century. And he was quoted as saying, everyone who is seriously committed to the cultivation of science becomes convinced that in all the laws of the universe is manifest a spirit vastly superior to man and to which we with our powers must feel humble. And maybe not quite as well known, but pretty well known, Dr. Francis Collins is an American physician geneticist who discovered the genes associated with a number of diseases and he led the Human Genome Project. He was the director of the National Institutes of Health. And I had the privilege of having breakfast with him a few months ago and wow, I found him to be the most humble and passionate person. And here's how he describes his faith journey, not just believing in God, but in the God of the Bible. Well, in the home where I grew up, uh, faith was not something that was talked about very much. Uh, my father was a professor of drama, my mother a playwright. Uh, when I went to college and those discussions in the dorm late at night about religion uh, began to occur, I had no particular reason to attach value uh, to a faith system. It had never been something I was familiar with or had internalized at all. And I assumed that any religious feelings that anyone held must be on the basis of some emotional experience, and I didn't trust those, or on the basis of some childhood indoctrination, uh, which I felt I was fortunate to have missed. I loved the experience of learning about the human body and all of the components of that, and I particularly loved being introduced to genetics. But then I ended up in the medical school curriculum sitting at the bedside of patients with diseases. This was no longer an abstract study of molecules and organ systems. These were real people. And one afternoon, one of my patients, a wonderful elderly woman, much like a grandmother, uh, who had very bad heart disease. Uh, she had a particularly bad episode of chest pain uh, while I was with her. She got through it, and at the end of that, explained to me how her faith was the thing that helped her in that situation. She realized that the doctors around her weren't really giving her that much help, but her faith was. And after she finished her own very personal description uh, of that faith, she turned to me, and I had been silent, and she looked at me quizzically, and she said, what do you believe, doctor? And ultimately, I had to admit to myself that her question had made me realize that I had arrived at an answer to the most important issue that we humans ever deal with. Is there a God? And I had arrived there without ever really looking at the evidence. 
and I was supposed to be a scientist. If there's one thing scientists claim they do is to arrive at conclusions based upon evidence, and I hadn't taken the trouble to do that. I was greatly assisted uh, by a pastor who lived down the road who I went and asked about all this and who gave me a copy of C.S. Lewis's wonderful book, Mere Christianity, because here was an Oxford scholar, a prodigiously developed intellect, who had traveled the same path. Within those pages, I realized for the first time that one can come to belief on a rational basis and that, in fact, given the many pointers that one sees around oneself in terms of the universe and it having a beginning and its fine-tuning in terms of the way in which all those constants that determine the behavior of matter and energy seem to have been set just in a certain very precise range to make life possible, uh, and many other things, including my beloved mathematics and why they actually work anyway to describe the universe, something that makes you think the creator must have been a mathematician. That brought me then to the person of Jesus Christ as a person who was historically extremely well documented. That was news to me. I thought Christ was as much myth as history, and I realized after reading more about it, this was a historical figure upon which we have a great deal of evidence for his existence and his teachings, and even his rising from the dead in a literal way. That day at uh, my patient's bedside started a journey for me, a journey that I was reluctant uh, to begin, but I felt I needed to, a journey that I thought would result in strengthening my atheism, but to my surprise, resulted in my conversion. What I'm trying to say is this, that you don't need to feel like you have to check your brain at the door um, and be intellectually inept if you believe in the existence of God. Now, we could talk about all sorts of famous, smart people who believe in God, and we could talk about all sorts of arguments for the existence of God and whether or not they work or convincing, but at the end of the day, I realize that all the evidence and arguments and reasons, um, it has to go deeper than intellectual engagement because humans are not some sort of rational robot. In fact, we're the opposite. We're emotional and intuitive and relational and complex and sophisticated and multifaceted. So our answer to why I believe there is, there's a God can't just be intellectual or one-dimensional. It also has to be experiential. And sometimes you can find yourself grappling with this question in a way that you didn't expect for reasons that you may not have anticipated. About 18 years ago, 17 years ago, after more than 30 years of being a follower of Jesus, being a committed Christian, my husband and I had adopted two children. Our eldest was three years old and who had many, many special needs. And our second was an infant. And at that time, I found myself with an unexpected pregnancy, which I supposedly wasn't able to have. Um, we had gone through a long infertility journey, and I was told that my unborn baby was likely to have severe special needs as well. And all of this combined with a really, really difficult pregnancy, and somewhere in the midst of all of that, I realized, and I told my husband, hey, I am not sure that I'm going to be coming out of this as a believer. Um, as I like to say, he wisely just nodded his head 
and then asked a thousand people to pray for us. But even if you were never in my exact situation, you may know what I'm talking about, where you face a situation, an unexpected time or event or um, things you see or observe that where you realize at one point in your life, hey, this is devastating. And now God feels like a, a, a distant living thing on the other side of the planet. Or maybe you've been a part of a church or community and you got burned by a friend or a leader and you thought, hey, if that's what God's people are like, maybe not. Many of us know uh, in this current time that there are plenty of people, especially in their um, youth or 20s, 30s, who have deconstructed their faith. And what was once a passionate, intimate relationship with God has crumbled into practically no faith at all. This happens. And if that's um, something that you've been experiencing or something similar, I don't blame you for feeling the way that you do. But I'd also be willing to bet that your experience is broader than just those experiences. Because there are probably other moments in your life that point in another direction. Moments of wonder that took your breath away. Moments that seem to point you in some way to God. And these things can be happening at the same time. They don't have to be just one or the other. But these moments or snippets, I call them signposts. They don't necessarily make an airtight case for the existence of God, but they point toward God. I think there are a lot of very convincing arguments for the existence of God, but they all, including the arguments against, involve a degree of faith. I don't think that there's an unquestionable set of evidence for or against the existence of God, no matter what YouTube or X, Twitter says. But I believe these signposts exist to nudge us toward God. They resonate deeply within us and they point to something bigger than ourselves. For example, one signpost that points beyond ourselves is the experience of beauty. Oxford professor and theologian, Dr. N.T. Wright in his book, Simply Christian says, we must acknowledge that beauty whether in the natural order or within human creation, is sometimes so powerful that it evokes our very deepest feelings of awe, wonder, gratitude, and reverence. I'm guessing we've all experienced these moments. And if we're willing or able to pause long enough to take in the world around us, we're struck by the awe and wonder of it all. You might have experienced that like in the Yosemite Valley or hiking in the Redwoods, uh, on the Nepali coast, on the island of Kauai. I remember looking at the night sky in the Philippines where there was very little light pollution and my team and I were walking toward an evening meeting and it was like I was seeing the sky for the first time. I just had such a sense of awe and I was like, you guys, the sky is so beautiful. 
But then I promptly fell into a sewer ditch. So that was memorable. But these moments provide uh, moments of awe, which leads many of us to think or sense that beauty points us to a divine artist, a mind that has created and orchestrated a good, ordered, beautiful world. There's a poem in the Old Testament that reads this way. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. And the psalmist, the writer of this psalm or poem, is saying that the heavens, the, the awesomeness that one sees in this world, it's declaring the reality of an artist. In the New Testament, in the book of Romans, the author Paul writes, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So that which is made reflects and is a reflection of an invisible but present God. Beauty calls us out of ourselves to something bigger, and it resonates deeply within us. The Christian story says that the heart of the universe is the beautiful one, the originator of beauty. A second signpost that points beyond ourselves is the longing for justice. I think of what we've all experienced these last several years when it comes to injustice. And think of all that has filled the headlines and the home pages and filled the streets with protesters. It is the cry of people who have experienced and seen injustice. Even if you go to the nearest playground and you hear children, uh, if you listen to them for a while, soon you will hear them saying, that's not fair. Because the sense of fairness and justice is part of being human. We have a longing for the world to be put right. We know the world is not as it should be. And you have undoubtedly experienced the desire for justice at some point in your life. Maybe you've seen people in extreme poverty. I remember years ago when I was in the city, a city in Southeast Asia where every time our car stopped, Little children dressed in rags would swarm around our car with their little hands out begging for a coin or a piece of food. And something in me at that time just burned with a sense of this is not right. This is not how things should be. Maybe you've felt this longing for justice when you've read about a shooting or a stabbing or systemic violence committed against a group of people just because of their gender or ethnicity or political or religious views. And you realize, hey, that's not right. And you feel deep in your bones that someone needs to do something. C.S. Lewis, one of the great, greatest Christian thinkers of the 20th century said, human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot get rid of it. In every human being, we have this sense of how things ought to be. This points to the fact that there are moral facts in the universe and that every civilization believes 
that betraying a friend or lying to a family member goes against moral virtue. C.S. Lewis concludes that this moral order points to a source of morality, to God, a God who is concerned with justice and wants his people to be concerned with fairness. One last signpost pointing beyond ourselves is the desire for relationships. We all long to be in healthy, meaningful relationships. Even when, when, when relationships are difficult and we feel like swearing off people all around us, but we still want someone there at that moment to have pity or compassion on us. Um, you might have experienced that if you've isolated because of COVID, as I have this week. And I realized like, at first I'm like, okay, I can handle this. This might not be so bad. Or maybe I'll get stuff done. Or finally, some time alone. But at some point I realized I'm lonely. I need love. And I would call random family members in, in my house saying, do you love your mom? Do you love your wife? And they're like, wow, needy. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> maybe you've experienced this at the birth of a child or on a wedding day or sitting around a table with good friends that desire that resonance with the need for relationships. Relationships point back toward a God who is the definition of love. The earliest Christ followers believed that this is what Jesus revealed about love, about God, that God is love. Whether you believe in God or not, we likely all have moments where something just deeply resonates with us, whether it's beauty or justice or relationships. When we see these things lived out, or better yet, when we experience them ourselves, there's something in our gut that knows that there's something powerful here. It's a little bit like this. In music, there's the treble, which are the tones of high frequency. The symbol on the top of this music chart is the treble. And the counterpart to the treble is the bass, the lower, deeper tones. And it's the symbol on the bottom. It looks kind of like an ear. The treble is something you hear, but the bass is more like something you feel. Have you ever been to a concert where the bass was cranked way up? You kind of feel it in your gut, in your whole body. And the truth is, in our culture, we're surrounded by a lot of treble, the noise, social media, sound bites, home pages, news feeds, advertising, entertainment, things fighting for our attention. And in the midst of that sea of noise, I think a lot of us deep down long for a bass note, something that resonates deeply within us. The presence of God resonates within us like a bass note. God is not something merely to learn about or even just talk about, or something, but something, someone to experience deep down this longing, whether we recognize what exactly it is or not, is in all of us. And while we've been looking for evidence for God's existence, the question today is a deeper one. 
Why Believe There Is a God? And I'd like to share two resources with you, which I think you would find interesting and I hope helpful. This first one, you're welcome to take a photo of the links if you're interested, is from um, an article in Stanford News Journal about how Dr. Tanya Lerman, a Stanford anthropology professor, explores how religious practices and narratives can create deep positive changes for people who engage in them. And she's uh, writing, it's about a book that she's written about the benefits of um, religion and belief. And secondly, Dr. Francis Collins mentioned that the book Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis was really helpful to him in his journey of considering the existence of God. I have a number of copies um, of the physical book on the welcome table that I've asked people to bring to the welcome table where you are, many of you are, um, at JLS, for those of you who are there in person. If you might think that this would be helpful to you, I wanna encourage you to grab one. And if you run out, I'll get you some more, just email me. And if you, um, please feel free to take one, but just promise me they at least try to read it. Don't just stick it in the bookshelf. Let me say that in this series, we're not trying to convince you of anything, but we are inviting you to be on this journey with us and explore these important things. And I do want to push you a little bit because I believe that this is the most important journey that a person could ever take. There's a 17th century mathematician named Blaise Pascal, and he had a passion about helping people to discover God. And this is what he used to do to his, with his fellow intellectuals. And he called this Pascal's wager. He would challenge people to wager or make a bet with God or take a risk to um, see if you stepped out one step to um, see if something was true about God, what would God do? So he would say, make a bet that if there's a God who loves you and if you're right, you have everything to gain. And if you're wrong, then you have nothing to lose. So make a bet that God is real. And I wanna encourage you to do that individually. I invite you to just say a very simple prayer. God, if you're there, if you're real, reveal yourself to me. Some of us might more authentically pray, God, I think you're real, would you reveal yourself to me? And some of us might even pray, God, I know you're real, but I need you anew to reveal yourself to me. I just also wanna say that faith is never just an individual thing. It is a communal journey. And so I wanna invite you in this church, in this community, we are on this journey together. And I wanna say that you don't have to believe to belong. So no matter where you're at in your journey of understanding or knowing or believing in God, you're welcome to join us. Join us every week, especially for the next five weeks as we're in this conversation together. We have discussion groups going on and I wanna encourage you to be encouraged by your fellow explorers. And for sure, don't miss next week because I'll be 
speaking on the topic of why does God allow pain and suffering? So I'd like to pray that we would all be able to step forward and um, make a bet on God. Would you pray with me? Oh God, if you are real, would you make yourself real to us in this coming week? And would you help each of us to feel the base notes of your presence in our lives? In Jesus' name, amen.